Oda Ayo, I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Uh, really, really good to see you. Uh, we've been fans of Peggy Vest for a long time, a pioneering savings company in Nigeria. I was wondering if you could uh, maybe start by explaining a little bit about what Peggy Vest does and uh, how you got started. Right. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, we started Piggy Vest in 2016, and it was essentially an answer to a gap that we found in the savings infrastructure here in Nigeria. So we realized that more people should be doing it. We're actually looking towards saving into actual wooden boxes, you know. People were making and keeping wooden boxes in their homes and putting money there. And this is despite the fact that the average young person in Nigeria has two bank accounts. So there was obviously something missing. And so we decided that we were going to create a digital form of that wooden box. And that's how Piggyvest was born. Uh, it was initially called Piggy Bank, which is just the English word for the box. And so <laughs> what we started to do was just automate like saving of little amounts of money daily, weekly, or monthly towards a target for people. Of course, it's now grown into offering different micro versions of financial services from savings to investments. But that was how we started, just helping young people put aside very little amounts of money in frequencies that they control. That's incredible. And it was so early in the history of fintech in Nigeria. Um, I heard a good story about how you actually had the idea, something about a New Year's resolution, yeah. is that right? You want to tell that story? So uh, in, on December 31st, 2015, there was a lady who had saved a thousand naira every day in a box all that year. And then she broke the box. She had 365,000. She put it on Twitter and then the tweet went viral. And my co-founder saw it and then brought that tweet to our group chat. And that was how we started to talk about the idea. And... Just a little bit about your background. What were you doing at the time? Well, uh, I, I graduated uh, computer engineering in 2013 and just immediately started like um, working in tech as an entrepreneur. So we'd, at the time we were, we were working on other startups. So we had worked on from 2013 to the moment where we got the idea for Piggy Vest. We're working on a startup called Push CV, which was in the HR space. And in that time as well, we had tried our hand at several other startups, maybe like five, and four wow. of them had failed. It was like really well. <laughs> wow. So how do you have the endurance to start five startups? I mean, it can be really, really frustrating. Usually after people have one failed startup or one struggling startup, they go find a job in corporate in the corporate world. But I mean, you had to endurance to start five startups? Well, for one thing, I don't like to dress corporately. So the corporate world helps me <laughs> attract Okay. I knew that that was, I just wasn't going to fit in there. But the other thing was that like, I, I, I didn't think I had a choice in that in 2013, I had deferred my admission and deferred it again in 2014. And so like I'd lost the admission for my master's degree. So this, this was like what I had to do and I had to make it work because I told my parents it would work. <laughs> and um, I don't know, did you learn a lot about what makes a startup work during that time and what makes it fail? Yes, actually, for every startup that we started and that failed, there was a very pretty obvious standout lesson 
that we've then gone on to use or avoid in Piggy Vest, right? For instance, um, the, we had one startup called 500 Dishes and it was essentially bulk food delivery, which is now a huge thing on the internet in Nigeria, but just wasn't in 2015. So we, we learned a lot about right place, right time, right idea. You know, we learned a lot about um, sustainable business models. We learned a lot about um, profits like margins and how you needed to make them wide enough to make the business continue running. We learned a lot about like uh, target markets, segmenting, understanding when something is repeat business and when it's not. And so when we started Piggy Vest, this um, arsenal of losses and what basically became the secret weapon for going into Piggy Vest, even though we essentially still approach Piggy Vest as an experiment, but we had like all of those things at first in our subconscious, then later in our conscious that we had to avoid all these pitfalls. Mm. Yeah, I remember um, seeing the app. I've been, you know, spending a lot of time in Nigeria for the past five years. And I remember seeing the app uh, right after it launched. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And it just had a few downloads and I didn't think much of it. And then oh, yeah. I checked in. <laughs> I checked in a few months later, or maybe six months later. And then, wow, it was everywhere. Everyone was doing it. So it didn't seem like it was like uh, a immediate hit. But it seems like something you did in the first year or two. Um, turned it around pretty fast. How, what happened? Well, I mean, you were right. It definitely was not an immediate hit. It's, it was really slow at first. And I think it was, first of all, like, everyone is like, yeah, you know, this isn't going to work. The banks are going to kill you. So there's that. <laughs> then there was, there was the fact that we had no money just because everyone thought the banks were going to kill us. So yeah. we had to focus on growing it via organic social media, right? So... Essentially, it was myself and my co-founders in front of laptops coming up with like interesting tweets to drive clicks. And then, um, so what my co-founder then did was he took the platform to one of the guys who was retailing the actual wooden boxes in January of 2016 and told him to try it out. That guy tried it out, signed up, started using the platform, and then word started to spread you know it was one after the other then it became five people telling other five people then it became people with large platforms talking about how they've tested it without us having to pay anything so at the point when it must have boomed which i think maybe the time you're talking about is when someone who hosts a radio show or one of the popular radio stations we didn't even know he'd been using the platform but he'd used it from possibly the second month and about seven months after, he withdrew his funds and it was instant and he went straight to his Twitter and just told everybody. And that was like a one-to-one to Yeah, exactly. And also gave us our marketing like strategy. Yeah, yeah. I think um, a lot of savings apps, especially in the US, have failed um, because what I would call the, the eating broccoli problem, meaning it's healthy, it's a healthy behavior. Uh, just like broccoli and oftentimes especially on mobile apps it's hard to convince somebody to do something that involves long-term planning or health and unfortunately a lot of the things that get popular are um, like junk food unpopular uh, unhealthy activities so it's it's incredible that you convinced you know millions of people to do something that's good for themselves especially with their phone you know Uh, so kudos to you do you think um 
it, it, is it the return? Is it the, the high yields that really get people hooked? Or how do you get people to do something responsible? Honestly, I think I, I, I don't think it's the returns because we certainly don't offer the highest returns on the market. Uh, and I, I think mm. that it was just like, again, right place, right time, the right idea. Yeah. At the time we launched for the first, and then we had this name that was Piggy Bank and just like easy to remember, easy to relate to. And it was so different than anything that existed at the time. And also, you just mentioned a very key part. We didn't ask people to do it for a long time. We asked them to do it for 90 days at a time. Oh, okay. So short, that short was periods. very, very, so you had the choice to do it for only 90 days and then renew or not. And so mm -hmm. what people started to discover was if it's easy to do it for 90 days, then you can do it for 180. If you can do it for 180, you can do it for a year. And then people, there's people who are saving on the platform now for two years, for three years. And they so that's kind out. of how... Especially when, like, we, we, as of 2016, Nigeria had really, really poor savings culture. And so you try to change their habits very little steps at a time. And a very key perspective was we basically did what we as individuals would do because we are in the target market that we're servicing. Okay. So I, I, I wouldn't have lived safe for a year, exactly. Amazing. Um yeah, just for um, an American audience, can you explain the yields? I mean, the, the yields are high for at least compared to what you get in the U.S. It sounds shockingly high, you know, above 10%. So what are the yields and how, how do you offer those? Well, I, I mean, we offer uh, anywhere from 10 to 13% on the, um, the savings plans that we control. And then on the discretionary investment marketplace, you can get up to 25% a year depending on wow. which um, risk appetite and what you choose to invest in. But the, the returns are that high just because compared to the U.S., Nigeria does have higher inflation rate. And so hmm. for any investment to be worth it, it has to be higher or at least slightly on par with the inflation rate to make sure people are not losing out on their money. So Nigeria has, uh, well, it's much higher now, but it has like above 10% inflation rate, which means that we have to help people manage their funds properly by offering those high rates. Incredible. It sounds too good to be true for an American, at least. And is it, is it guaranteed? I mean, uh, if I'm trying to get 10, 12, 15%, is that insured that, that, that return? Or is that like a, an investment in a stock or Bitcoin or something that might, I might lose my money? Oh, so we, as, as a company, we only invest our users funds in low to zero risk instruments. So bills, bonds, commercial papers, and debt okay. notes that are on some level guaranteed either by the government or by another third party that has enough of an asset base to make sure that funds are not lost, right? So at some point, as the company grows, we will probably diversify into riskier assets. But for now, we're very, very much on the side of risk-free. And you mentioned uh, there is a man selling wooden boxes. Uh, why were yeah. people using wooden boxes when they can get yields? Were banks not offering this? I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. Oh, yeah. Before PiggyVest, why weren't people getting 12% from their bank? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And the simple answer is that banks were not and are not offering it. Uh, at no point has, have they like, given up to those returns to anyone. Right? Hmm. And I think that's really important as a motivation. One of the things that we noticed in 2016 was that 
if you look at, at Nigeria, right, um, the, the World Bank would tell you that about half of the country lives in extreme poverty. So there is like a lot more to be done on that side of the country. But even the, the side of the country that doesn't live in poverty is struggling, right? Mm. More than 80% of those people must save 40% of their monthly income to be able to meet up with any responsibility at all, right? And if you look at our rent, we pay a year or two years in advance. And like earning compared to your expenses, it's just not the best ratio. So what you need is infrastructure that encourages saving. In 2016, it just didn't exist. If you open the bank account, you got your withdrawal slip, you got your ATM cards, uh, all of which are designed to encourage taking money out, especially because like a lot of traditional institutions make money from the transactional movement of money. So that yeah. it just wasn't there. And they're like they had to no, Exactly. Or inhibition, really. So we created Pigivest and said, you know, every 90 days you can withdraw for free. Outside of those 90 days, we will charge you an early withdrawal penalty. And okay. everyone was like, this will never work. But it did because it turns out people were looking for just something a little, just something slightly hard to like touch their funds where they keep it. And so that's why I think it resonated so much at the time. That's amazing. It's like you took away a feature and that made it more popular. Like you, you made it harder for people to withdraw money and people like that. People want um, the inhibition on their freedom, which is very counterintuitive. How have banks responded? Well, initially they just kind of ignored us. Um, we just like, yeah, you guys are going to go away soon. And then Later, it became, we're going to fight you guys. And then, like, there was this onslaught of bank-sponsored, like, fintech products. And now, I think we've all kind of arrived at the place where we realized that we're probably going to have to work together and be complementary. Fintech has the required technology and desired speed and flexibility. Banks have the asset base and significantly better knowledge of regulation. So I think that, yeah probably going to work together at some point. We're just getting there, but the ecosystem is too young. And and uh, the trust issue that you mentioned, you know, people trusting the service. Um, uh, what else What else helped support that? Because when we look at models around savings um, worldwide, especially kind of upstart fintech uh, models, trust seems to be kind of at the top of the list for a lot of folks of, you know, kind of what inhibits them from working with perhaps just a, a better yielding, more convenient service um, that's digital over kind of, you know, established options in the market, however, you know, uh, inconvenient they might be. Right. So, uh, I mean, the trust thing we had to like earn from scratch. So, and it, it was very, very hard one because it went from that, and that's one of the reasons why our marketing strategy is mostly like peer-to-peer -peer recommendations and referrals, because we figure that um, as a fintech company in a country that like smartphone penetration isn't as high as you'd like it to be, the best place for people to get their recommendations from you will be from other people that they trust instead of spending money on ads and billboards and all other forms of marketing. So we have essentially turned our users into the ambassadors of the product. And for us, that's the most important thing. So we focus really um, very, very much on customer support and sustaining the ease and transparency that were the hallmarks of the product from scratch. So 
any moves that we're making, we're carrying the users along. When we change our name, when we change our rates, when we're revamping or closing the product, or for, I can give you a small example is, there is a product on the platform called the Flex Dollar. And typically people should be able to withdraw those dollars into their bank accounts. And during COVID, for instance, we had to suspend it. And everyone was like, you can just suspend it and put, we'll be back soon. But I, I thought, I, I told people that we have to tell them this is why we are suspending it so that they understand that we don't take the decisions lightly. And so it's things like that that we think engender that trust. And I think it's also helped by the fact that us as the founders are people that they can pretty much have a chat with on Twitter whenever. And it helps that we're very visible. We're like, um, we also, we, we really try to build a human brand, one who's entire vibe is we're just your friends who slightly know about money and who can help you with financial management but it's not like a from the top looking down like most traditional institutions have built so far where do you where do you um where do you want to go what additional features uh what additional uh you know services would you like to offer i mean it's such a wonderful platform where you know over a million people now are saving and using your services, um, real wealth building products, what's next? Well, uh, so yeah, uh, we're looking very much. So we've like, we started with savings, with micro savings. And now we have an investment marketplace that focuses on micro investments. So essentially um, we're looking at financial services from the point of view of access and affordability what can we give to young people that they were previously not able to access and how can we make it bite-sized so they can afford it? Um, so the first thing you naturally think about now after saving an investment is insurance. If you, uh, in Nigeria, only 2% of the whole population is insured. And that's very, um, very disturbing when you think about how much infrastructure we do not have. So we're looking at what are the kinds of insurances that are immediate needs for young people and how can we break it down with the help of existing institutions? And then we're also very, very, um, very critically looking at the cryptocurrency space and how we can make it accessible to the layman as well. Um, another thing that we're looking at is obviously um, peer-to-peer um, sending of funds between our users. Uh, so we're looking at those three things specifically, insurance, cryptocurrency, and then peer-to-peer. -peer. At some point, we'll probably like take a very good look at remittance, but that space is kind of full at the moment. <laughs> um, and I don't know, when you raise money, maybe um, VCs want you to work in every country in Africa. Do you, do you plan to expand other countries? We, we do plan to expand to other countries, but I think that... Um, the way people look at investments needs to be um, slightly different. I'm sorry, expansion needs to be slightly different. Mm -hmm. uh, we, so investment, um, expansion to me, sorry, is more a where can we expand to and get the deepest and like largest foothold. And naturally people would say, so when are you going to Ghana? When are you going to, you know, Kenya and things like that? But I, want, I really am still wondering from a research perspective if that's the right move or if you look to Latin America, for instance, and look at oh, the country wow. that closely mirrors Nigeria and that's yeah. enabling and wonder if you can pilot there. So instead of like, you know, just planting the tents in the next country and the next country, 
I want to yeah. look at the country whose market is big and as ripe as Nigeria and see if that's where we go next. But still early stages. We're just at about maybe 2 million people in Nigeria and there's still maybe 20 million more to kind of capture. Oh, great. Many, okay. What, what, uh, what uh, companies do you look at worldwide uh, that serve as inspirations um, for Piggy Best? Wealthfront, very much. And then ING Direct. I, I love those two companies. I think that what they're doing, especially Wealthfront as a digital asset manager, that's exactly what we hope to be. So, Any uh, words of advice to other uh, fintech entrepreneurs out there just getting started, looking for user traction, trying to build trust uh, beyond what you've shared? Well, I, I, I don't know if like my advice is worth taking or anything, but I usually would advise people to just um, be unconventional in their thinking. Um, all the well-worn roads, like, you know, they always lead to the same place and you typically want very different um, results than the people you're trying to disrupt than the incumbent. So just think a little different. It always helps. It's helped us. So, you know. All right. Well, I think we're bumping up onto the half hour and that was a great chat. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you so much. See ya. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye. Bye.